Find your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, our final look at this book as we have systematically been walking through it. I can't even remember when we started it, but it was some time back, right? But here we are, and we're at the final words in Romans 16. Well, summer is coming to a close. Some of you kids have already gotten back to school. Um, school for many folks is getting started this week. We've got Baylor students coming back, MCC, TSDC. A lot of action coming with the close of summer. I hope you had some fun times and maybe even made some memories, uh, maybe even tried to do something you've never done before. That was the case uh, for my family and I. A few weeks ago, we were back in Oregon, and uh, we've seen this taking place on the Columbia River. It's called windsurfing, and Columbia River separates Washington and Oregon. The wind just keeps gusting in there, and, and they literally stand on these surfboards, and then they got these sails, and they can do amazing tricks, okay, fly off waves. I mean, it's spectacular. And so this summer, for the first time, we tried windsurfing. Now, what it is is that you, you kind of get the bodysuit there. In fact, there I am, and they give you a training session. For an hour, they're going to try to train you. And so you, you stand on the surfboard with a sail on dry land. And I want you to know that I did pretty good on dry land. It was, it was all right, you know. I listened to the instructor. Everything they told me to do, you know, I eventually got figured out I wasn't, like, the best in my family. But I'm, like, I'm respectable. And I kind of, you kind of have these, like, illusions slash delusions of grandeur of what it's going to look like when you actually get on the water. I mean, I didn't have any high hopes I'd end up on the front page of the Oregonian or anything like that. But I get out on the water, and I am a disaster. I am, like, not only the worst in my family, but the worst in my entire class, Okay. And I spent most of my time not on my surfboard, but trying to climb back on it, okay? And most of the time I'm in the river. Uh, they actually had a perimeter where they said, we really don't want you to go past this, and they had a barrier there. Well, the highlight of my day is I, I'm floating out in the Columbia River until I get to this barrier, and I have to end up swimming back to shore, hauling my surfboard with the drag of the sail in the water. I mean, it's total defeat. But that was my experiences. I was completely unstable. Any of you tried windsurfing? Nah, so stop laughing, okay? I'm sure you wouldn't have been a whole lot better. You know how it is in life when you're trying to do something new. Uh, some of you have got kids doing this, like they're learning how to walk and they're totally unstable. Or like riding a bike, right? Remember that? And then like a skateboard. Never did the skateboard really well. And now they have these ripsticks, okay? So it's like a skateboard that twists, okay? I mean, it's really difficult. And it takes a while to develop stability. And you'd expect that. That's true physically. It's also true spiritually. If you're going to develop stability in life, it's going to take time. But I have really good news for you. God is able to establish us fully mature, stable, like a rock in our relationship with Christ. The sad reality is that a lot of folks can't be characterized by stability. Now, you might have financial stability. You might have physical stability. You can walk all right. But your life is kind of being whipped around by emotions. You kind of have a loss of a sense of your identity. You're not actually sure who you are or what you are to do. And maybe, in fact, you might be rather hopeless. How is it that we experience stability that we're established in life? Well, I want you to know, that that's how the book of Romans ends. As we've been systematically working our way through this book, this book ends with this grand doxology. It is magnificent. It's kind of like at a fireworks display. You know when you go to a fireworks display, what does it always end with? You know? Yeah. It's called the grand finale. 
I mean, some county spends their entire budget for the year right there, and you watch it just exploding, right? And they're hoping you're clapping because they spent everything they got to just kind of light up the sky. You've seen fireworks, but the end is kind of like that's just the preview to coming attractions because the end is when it's really cut loose, right? And hopefully they don't blow themselves or anybody else up, but they're letting it all loose there. Well, I'll tell you, that's how the book of Romans ends. It is like the grand finale of a fireworks display. And look at it, verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you. God can do it. You can't. But God says, I can establish you. That word establish has the idea of of making someone strong, resolved in their belief and their attitude, to make firm, stable, that they actually have gravitas. They're mentally stable and settled. They've got strength. And God says, that's what I intend to do in your life to ground you, to make you firm. And notice how he does it. He says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. So that's what I want to do this morning. I'd just like to take these final verses and let's just look at what God says on how he establishes maturity, stability in a person's life. See, the problem with life is that um, you and I, Uh, We try to squeeze life and find our sense of purpose and identity and peace and pretty much anything or anyone other than God. And ultimately, it always lets us down because it's never meant good things, whether it be education or money or position. um, These things, although they be good, they were never meant to be the stability factor of your life. And what happens is we, we try to, We try super hard and we squeeze onto it and we hold on to like these little idols in our life. But it's kind of like they said, like you can't squeeze blood out of a turnip. Well, I'm not sure why you'd even try in the first place. seems foolish. But that's what it is when we try to make our sense of identity, purpose and significance and stability in anything or anyone but God. So how does God establish maturity in a person's life? Well, this text, it ends the book of Romans telling us just how to do that. Look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God who has been made known to all the nations. Let me tell you how God establishes maturity. He has believers growing in the power of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel, Paul says, verse 25, this is my gospel. He has such a strong identity with the person and the work of Jesus. The life, the perfect death, where he actually dies in the place of sinners, pays the penalty for sin, faces God's just wrath, he takes it on, and he is resurrected on the third day. To authenticate to the world, if you want true spiritual life, you want stability and you want life as it's intended, that's found in me and nothing and no one else. And Paul says, you know how God establishes us? Verse 25, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. There's only one source of hope, and it's found in the person of the work of Jesus. And Paul said, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he says, we got one message. We preach Christ crucified to the Jewish people. That's a stumbling block. The idea that Jesus, that he is the promised Messiah, 
Many of the Jews are like, no, we don't want Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to the Gentiles, it's, it's, it's foolishness. To the non-Jewish person, and for many people in the world, the whole idea of trusting in Jesus as this resurrected Messiah, that indeed he's life, life eternal and abundant, that's a bunch of nonsense. You need to know that many people in the world think that what you're doing today is a colossal waste of time. But yet, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified because to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And friends, this is the mystery that's been revealed. Do you see that? He says, we preach Christ crucified. The preaching of Jesus Christ, it's according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. God says this, this was a mystery in the Old Testament era. They had the Old Testament scriptures. A mystery in the scriptures isn't like you and I use mystery, like a mystery novel, like we're not sure who done it sort of deal. A mystery is something that is yet to be revealed. So, for instance, the people that were studying the Old Testament, they didn't understand how is it that God was going to bring about forgiveness of sins through this one promised Messiah. How, who is this person going to be? And how is, it, how is it that Jews and Gentiles would literally be one people of God? Well, guess what? What happens is the New Testament actually shows how God does that work. And he does so through the person of Jesus. He shows how Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus and in the New Testament. And so that's what he says. We preach Christ. He's the one who reveals this mystery. And so... You're going to find, like, all the way back from the very beginning of the Bible. Remember, God makes this promise, and he says, listen, after Adam and Eve sinned because they actually bought into the lie of Satan, they disregarded and disobeyed God. They, they did exactly what he said not to do. God made this promise. I will send one, and he's going to come through a woman, and he is literally going to crush the head of Satan. His work is going to be crushed. God promises to do that. If you look at the book of Isaiah, God promised that the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. God will make someone right and he's going to actually bear their iniquities. Or Jeremiah wrote this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel wrote this, I shall give them one heart and shall put a new spirit within them and I shall take their heart of stone, their hard heart, and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh that's going to beat after me. God says, I'm going to bring about this transformation. And the Jews thought, well, this is only applicable to us. God wanted to be crystal clear. This is applicable to Jew and Gentile. In fact, remember when you're in Romans 15, beginning in verse 9, all the way through 12, he gave a series of Old Testament prophecies that pointed to what? Verse 12, there shall come from the root of Jesse, and he who arises will rule over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. God says, I'm going to do it. And I'm revealing this mystery, and I do so through Jesus Christ. And this is manifested, verse 26, in the scriptures. And notice the intent. It has been made known to all the nations. God wants this gospel to go forth throughout the entire world. The problem with many Christians today is we have such a limited vision. We're, 
we're not even concerned about the gospel going forth. I mean, like, yeah, we're a church, and we sure hope that there'll be some missionaries, and they'll take it to the ends of the earth. And we're hoping that someone else might share Christ in very real ways with others. But I want you to know that God intends for you to be that person. We have settled for small visions. And I'd just like to ask, when you think about your dreams in life, do they have anything to do with Jesus and his gospel going forth to the people in your lives and the people of this world? Or are your dreams and vision kind of really about all about you? And maybe you might include your family, but they're really about kind of self-actualization and self-satisfaction and really about making you happy. The problem is we have such small visions. Paul said this gospel, my gospel, it's a vision that God has given of reaching the nations, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, the people, the people with this message about Jesus. There's a guy by the name of David Burnham. If you've studied architecture, you've certainly come across this guy. He was the guy who actually made the master plan for uh, Washington, D.C., the city of Chicago. As far as the city district, this is the guy that laid out the plans. He also was the architect for many pretty amazing buildings. You find him in New York, Washington, D.C. And during his career, David Burnham wrote this. Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans. Aim high in hope and work. Remembering that a noble logical diagram once recorded will never die. But long after we are gone, we'll be a living thing, asserting itself with ever-growing insistency. Remember that our children and grandchildren are going to do things that would stagger us. I thought, that's pretty interesting. Here's a guy, and it's like, his vision was grand for, like, cities and, like, building streets and buildings. Nothing wrong with that. Friends, you and I are entrusted with the gospel. Our vision is so that people will truly know God here in Waco, in Texas, around the world. And that's the vision that has to grip us. And friends, that's the power of the gospel. God literally changes people from the inside out. He brings transformation. And if you want stability in your life, you want to be stopped being whipped around by all of your emotions, stop clinging to these idols that can never satisfy, friends, it comes in growing and the power of the gospel. That's how the book of Romans ends. That's why Paul said, remember how the book began? Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It's kind of like the theme of the book. And Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And let me just ask you, are you ashamed of the gospel? Does anybody know apart from folks in this church, that you are a follower of Jesus. Have you ever, in an intentional way, tried to share your personal faith in Christ with another person? Or is it like, man, I don't don't want to be bold. People think I'm weird. No, 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 no. Faith is personal, and we don't talk about politics, and we don't talk about belief and religion and stuff like that. So I'm going to be silenced. Maybe it's because of our lack of boldness. Maybe because we haven't fully experienced the power of the gospel. That's what leads to instability in our life. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. 
In fact, he goes on to say in verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live, live by faith. And friends, that's how we do. That's how we do it. We live by faith. You see, the glory of the gospel is all that God has done through his son and is doing through his people. And, you know, I can understand why there would be some confusion. There was obviously mystery to the Old Testament. But the New Testament brings clarity. It's kind of like uh, going to a 3D movie. You ever did that? Go to a 3D movie and they kind of give you these glasses. Maybe some of you even have like a 3D TV, 3D TV in your home. And you look at the images and if it's a 3D movie, apart from the glasses, like it's all super blurry. I mean, you can kind of make things out, but you're really like yeah, hazy and doesn't make sense. But you slip the glasses on. Whoa! All of a sudden you've got dimension and you see things with clarity. Friends, that's what the New Testament does with the Old Testament. You see the fulfillment of prophecies regarding a Messiah, and you see them specifically. The 333 given in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. The New Testament helps us understand with clarity what God had been promising in the Old Testament. Or it's kind of like the Rubik's Cube. Uh, One of my kids got a Rubik's Cube. They're kind of making a comeback. Do you remember those? These, These are like highly perplexing puzzle, okay? And you can spin it all around. If you don't have things that are frustrating in your life and, and you don't have enough things telling you like you're really not that smart, get a Rubik's Cube. It really will help you. And I want to watch this, okay? And so you spin it around. You're trying to get it all put together. And it's just like, this is hopeless. Well, my kid got one of these and just couldn't figure it out. But he checked it out on YouTube because there are videos of people that know how to do it. And they actually show you. And sure enough, he can put the Rubik's Cube together. And he could do it now. I mean, it's like fascinating to see this. You know how he learned it, didn't you? He, he watched the YouTube video. Friends, that's what the New Testament does. It shows us how this all comes together in Jesus. And if you want clarity as to the gospel, clarity of understanding what God has accomplished, you're never going to do better than the book of Romans. That's why we've given ourselves to study this book. The theme of the book is the transforming power of trusting in Christ and his gospel. That is the theme of the book. And you can really break it down, the entire book, in six words. Just to review the outline. First of all, the book begins with exaltation, the glory of Christ and his gospel. It talks about how awesome and powerful and mighty is the living God, Jesus, and his gospel of redemption. And then it shows us why we need this good news. Because we're under condemnation. So chapter 1, 18 through 320 talks about the need for Christ and his gospel because we're all under sin. There's a reason why life isn't working and there's dreariness and guilt and we're weighed down and life isn't working because we're under condemnation. In fact, you will pay eternally the consequences of your sin unless the beautiful news of the third word of justification. The gift of God's righteousness through the gospel. You and I are called to believe in what Jesus did on our behalf. And then that's what he does. In the end of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 5, he talks about being declared right by God by the virtue of believing in him by faith. And then not only has God brought about salvation in our life, he intends to bring about sanctification. That you and I begin to grow to become more like Jesus. And we do so in the strength of his power. And that's sanctification. It's the reality of being set apart to Christ through the gospel. God doesn't want to leave you in an infant stage. He fully intends to bring you to the fullness of maturity. 
And that's what you have, sanctification. And then remember 9, 10, and 11? God answers the question about what about all the Jewish people? Is he just giving up on them? Are you done with them? Actually, 9, 10, 11 show us restoration. It's Israel's future reception of God's gospel. And he actually spells it out what that's going to look like. Right now, this is the time of the Gentiles. And most of the people placing their faith in Christ are non-Jewish people. But a time will come where the Jewish people will believe. And then finally, the book ends, chapters 12 through 16, with transformation. It's the developing lifestyle that comes from knowing Christ and his gospel. And friends, it is the central message of Christianity is Jesus Christ. My gospel, like Paul referred to it. Could be summarized by the cross. Do you know that the cross is actually an instrument of execution? I mean, we wear it as jewelry, right? Lots of people, jewelry around their neck, earrings. But the cross is an instrument of execution that God has turned into a symbol of redemption. It is like a clarion call wherever it is placed, calling lost, dead sinners to believe in the saving work of Jesus. It's to show that you can have genuine personal relationship with God because Jesus is no longer on that cross. He is alive and resurrected. And so, friends, if you want stability in your life, you know where it is? It's found in growing in the power of the gospel. Let me tell you something else about finding stability in your life. You may have missed this, but it's found at the end of verse 26. People that are being established are maturing, they're maturing in their understanding of the obedience of faith. Look at verse 26. Paul says, this gospel about Jesus, this that has been revealed in the Old Testament scriptures that has now been manifested, it is to lead to all the nations leading to the what? Verse 26. Actually, underlined in my Bible. The obedience of faith. Really interesting. The book begins, chapter 1, verse 5. Paul saying, I want to establish you in the obedience of faith. It ends with this obedience of of faith. See, if you, if you desire maturity, it is learning to obey Jesus Christ. To do so in his strength, but to literally be a follower of Jesus where you follow his word. Like he says something in the word, and you actually do it. Some people have mistaken that Christianity is just some sort of like intellectual, spiritual experience. And we can kind of reconcile these things. It's pretty fascinating how God has woven this all together. God doesn't want you just to be intellectually fascinated he wants you to follow his son. He wants you to believe. He wants you to trust him. You see, Jesus is the answer to the world's problems because he is the solution to sin. And so when he talks about the obedience of the faith for all the nations, it is always flowing, this relationship with Christ. It's always flowing in that we want to follow him and obey him. You see, it's putting our faith and trust in Christ and the Word of God, not in our feelings. And it's interesting. Christians have a faith that obeys, and they obey by faith. Christians, genuine Christians, have a faith that obeys, and they obey God by faith. They are trusting Him. I read this story. I believe it to be fictitious, but nonetheless, it's, it's out there. There's a story about this very long and seldom used trail in Nevada's Armagosa Desert. 
And apparently it's just desolation out there. There's no water. And there was a man who decided that he was going to walk this little used trail, and he just pretty much strapped himself with all these bottles of water, and he was determined to make it across this desert following this trail. And he was trying to ration out his water, but as it would be, it was very hot and very dusty, and he was very thirsty, and pretty soon he eventually ran out of water. And then he started getting really thirsty and getting more thirsty. And of course, he has no water to drink from, but lo and behold, on the trail, apparently is this old metal pump he comes up to it, and he's like, oh, he's like, this is great. There's a pump. And he starts trying to pump, but all he hears is the sound of metal just clanking together, and there's no water coming out. As, as he's looking in his despair, he notices that in the well, there's a, there's a tin can. There's, there's like paper in there. What? Like a message. He pulls the tin can out, and this is the message that he read. Dear traveler, do not despair. There's enough water here. Just follow the instructions. Lift the handle of the pump. Bring it down. And when you hear the sound of metal on metal discouraging you, here's what you do. Under the pump in front of you, there is buried under the sand a bottle of water. Do not despair. Pick up the bottle of water and pour it into the cylinder and start priming the pump. The moisture will get the system to work. A rush of water will start gushing out the pump. You can drink all the water you want, fill all the bottles, but do not forget to fill up the bottle again and leave it for the next passerby. Warning, you're going to be tempted when you see this one bottle of water to drink it. But you'll be so thirsty again, and so will everyone else who goes by. Empty it out as instructed, and you will have all the water you want, and so will everybody else going by. And it's signed, Desert Pete. So what would you do? You're really thirsty. You dig up in sand and there's the bottle. And it's water. And you're thirsty. Would, would you just drink the water? <laughs> I got relief. Or would you follow the instructions and use it to prime the pump? Friends, that's what faith is. Faith is calling us to trust God even when we would like to do it differently. Even when we're like, well, will that really work? You have God's assurance. That's how we're designed to live. And so what we do is we, we literally empty ourselves. We, we trust in Jesus. We put our hope and our faith in Him and the water of life. His presence flows from us. And friends, that's what leads to establishment, stability in your life. It leads to the obedience of faith. This is what faith is. Faith is taking God at His word. That's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. We believe what he says, even if it doesn't coincide with what we're feeling in the moment. So, for instance, God calls us to patience, perseverance, forgiveness. We do so by faith. We do so in his strength. The world might go, "Ah, that's ridiculous. But we're putting our faith not in a world system. We're putting our faith in Jesus. And by the way, you might want to develop some friendships, if you don't have them, of people that live like this who believe, who are going to encourage you in your faith to do the right thing. And what you're going to do is you're going to feel your soul resting at God. in God. You talk to God. You read His Word. You live by faith, and it will be transformational in your life. And you will always find that people who are really growing in maturity in Christ, they are obeying Him by faith. They trust Him to do the work, 
but there is an obedience that comes with faith. So friends, if we're going to be established, listen to how Romans ends. We want to be growing in the power of the gospel. We want to be seeing believers maturing in the obedience of faith. And let me ask you, are you obeying? What role does the word of God and obeying Jesus have in your life? Friends, if you want stability, you want to be established? This is, the, this is in entirety what God is seeking to accomplish in this relationship that you have in Christ that you love him and hence you obey him. And finally, God is in the process of orienting believers everywhere in the world to live for the glory of God. Look how this book ends. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Kind of interesting. I've been puzzled. Like, why, why the only wise God? Why not say the graciousness of God or the love of God or the mercies of God why wisdom and that is because it emphasizes that you would have to have an infinitely wise mind to have designated and accomplish such a plan of redemption this is God's working and it's through Jesus Christ it indicates that wisdom of God is displayed supremely through Christ and so as you focus on Jesus as you read the word you see the wisdom of God you don't check your brain out uh, like when you walk into the church like you just I'm not going to engage you fully engage the mental faculties that you have and you focus on the word and on Christ and you see the wisdom of God it's just like it's like exploding in the sky You see the greatness and the grandeur of God. You see his mercy, his justice, the character of God. And it makes sense. Why? Because it's God's wisdom on display. Friends, this is the gospel. And I will tell you that every message, every sermon, every Bible study that you're in, every quiet time that you have with God, the purpose of all theological study is this, to lead you to glorifying God with your life. Somehow we think like, well, I read the Bible and it'll help me live a better life or a cleaner life or not get in trouble or whatever. Those things are all good, but they're so far short of what the full intent is. God wants us to live to exalt him. And it's not just for us here. It's around the world. People living for the glory and the exaltation of God. And you may have noticed, maybe you have missed it, but when you walk into this building, and if you, when you walk out on your left-hand side, you're going to see this dedication plaque. And we put it up uh, when we actually opened this building. And it was an amazing testimony that we're even here. It was amazing that we could get this building. And so we put this dedication plaque, and it says, Fellowship Bible Church, dedicated to the glory of God, June 1st, 2003. And friends, that's what the church is all about. We're dedicated to to exalting the grandeur of God. You may not know this, but behind that dedication stone, I I hand-wrote the introduction to the Gospel of John. And Betsy Henderson, in calligraphy, wrote out the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Friends, this is the Gospel. It is found in the personal work of Jesus, that God is a faithful God, and we put our trust in Him. And so we give all the glory to God, And we grow in our faith in him. And friends, we really live. We got true maturity when we stop living for ourselves and start living for the glory of God. 
Living for the glory of God breaks the chains of self-centeredness. It keeps you earthbound, your self-occupation. But when you're like, you know what, man? My life, everything I got, my family, my job, how I go about my life, I am living for the glory of God. I am resting in the finished work of Jesus. And friends, that's when we really live. We're established in his faith. See, God glorifies himself by establishing his people fully mature in Christ. He does it. It's, this is the divine design of what he intends for his people. In 2007, uh, there was a tragedy that took place on I-35, far north of here uh, in Minnesota, actually, in Minneapolis. Uh, there was the, the bridge that crosses, they had one of the bridges that crosses the Mississippi River on I-35 during rush hour collapsed. Uh, killed 13 people, 145 people were injured. They, uh, they did an investigation as to what in the world happened. The New York Times did an article after this investigation came out, and it's, it says some very interesting things that I'd want to bring to your attention. Well, I'll just read an excerpt from the article. The designers has specified a metal plate that was too thin to serve as a junction of several girders, investigators say. The bridge was designed in the 1960s, and it lasted 40 years. But like most other bridges, it gradually gained weight during the period. As workers installed concrete structures to separate eastbound and westbound lanes and made other changes, adding strain to the weak spot. To say it another way, listen to this. The bridge lacked integrity. A bridge has integrity when it does what it was designed to do. Cars, trains, or people can travel across a bridge without it collapsing. In this sense, integrity isn't about morality but about the ability to function according to the intended design. Friends, you need to know something. That bridge can be a picture of your life if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone. In fact, I have the biblical assurance it'll be even far worse than this. You see, you and I, we are created in the image of God. God made each one of us. You need to come to terms with that. And he designed life to be lived by faith in his son. And so much is this the necessary reality. He actually sent his son into the earth and to actually live a perfect life, to die in our place, to rise again, to offer to anyone who believes genuine spiritual life, to transform us from the inside out, that we live in the stability and the joy of knowing the living God. That's what we're designed for. And so, friends, it's kind of like a windsurfer. You know, windsurfers, the God's ability, they're like flying off these waves. I mean, they're not like me, climbing, spending most of the time in the water, climbing up it. They are like soaring. And so do we. When we have placed our faith in Christ, when we keep trusting Him, when we have a faith in His Word, when we're looking to obey, we're trusting the Spirit of God to help us, we confess our sins before Him, and bottom line, Messed up though we are, we are living for the glory of God. Friends, this, this is the gospel according to Romans. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing conclusion to a beautiful book. 
like fireworks just going off. You are calling us to look to you, for you establish us in Jesus. You're bringing about an obedience to our faith. And you are calling us to live not for ourselves, but for your glory. And for the person that has come here today who has never trusted in Jesus, and it's been all about them, and, and they, they are now directly confronted with what life is all about, would they simply pray with me and say, Lord, I, I see life as it's intended. And I, I turn from my sin and my self-centeredness, and I believe in Jesus. I believe in the gospel, the good news. Lord, be the Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us, may we live in the strength of your Son. May we have joy in the gospel. May we obey by faith. And Lord, may our lives be lived for your glory, that you'd be exalted. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name.